off episode 143 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Invisible Dracula Goes to Town. It's by the band Invisible Dracula, and it's from their album, The Invisible EP. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Go check them out at invisibledracula.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at Monster Kid Radio. That's the website for the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and you guys and gals are some of the best podcast listeners out there. Welcome to the show. This is a fun week for me. I'm excited because we've got some great content. I've got some great crashes coming up. I'm going to go see some great movies on the big screen. This is going to be a fun ride. I'm glad you're here along with me. I mentioned the website monsterkidradio.net. This is where you can find out everything you need to know about the podcast between episodes. There's links to everything we've got going on, including a link to Invisible Dracula. If you click on songs, you'll see every song or piece of music that's appeared here on the show. You can find a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show. Speaking of patrons, special thanks to Tom and Eileen. They're some of our patrons here at Monster Kid Radio. We appreciate their financial support. We also have links over to our Facebook group and our Live 365 radio station. It's an internet radio station. If you click on that, you're going to be able to find your way over to our Live 365 setup where you can listen to music and sounds from movies from the 1930s, from the 1960s, monster movies, trailers, things like that. And every once in a while, I'll throw in something like some music from the Monster Squad. We'll talk about that later on in this episode. The Young Frankenstein musical or Ed Wood. I did just recently add a few new tracks to the Live 365 station. So if you think you've heard the playlist already and you can move on, well, get back in there. I've changed the order up, randomized it a little bit, and added a few new tracks. I hope you enjoy it. I enjoy putting that together. You can listen to Live 365 on your computer or your smartphone or download an app, and you can listen to it pretty much anywhere you want. You can also listen to this podcast pretty much anywhere you want because, well, we're on iTunes. You can find us at monsterkidradio.net. I think we're on Stitcher. You can listen to us and listen to any of our old episodes over at monsterkidradio.net, where you can find links to every single MP3 and episode of the show. You can also find our email address. It's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line, which is 503 503- Four seven nine five six five seven. That's five zero three four seven nine five M K R. Now on this week's episodes of Monster Kid Radio, Joe Stuber is back. We are continuing and kind of sort of concluding our journey through all of the Abbott and Costello Meet the Monster movies. That's right. This time we're talking about 1955's Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. Joe Stuber is the man behind the Comic Book Central podcast. You can find a link over at our website. He's also a regular contributor to the IndieCast, and he's been on the show quite a bit. When we did Monster Bash together and every other Abbott and Costello Meet movie, starting with Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, check out our show archives to listen to all of those episodes to get yourself ready for Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. In this part of the conversation, we talk about some of the names involved in the film. What was going on with Abbott and Costello at the time, the cast, the crew, that sort of thing. It's a fun chat. I look forward to sharing that with everybody. Also, we have the return of the Lugosi Ween countdown to Halloween, and we're going to talk about two upcoming Monster Kid Radio crashes. I'm going to go ahead and tell you about one right now because it's happening tomorrow night. If you're in the Portland, Oregon area, specifically if you're in Tigard, Oregon, I'd like to invite you to join me at the Joy Cinema for a screening of The Slime People. It starts at 9 p.m. It's 21 and older only. It's part of the Weird Wednesday series. 
and it's free to get in. I know it's short notice, but if you're in the area, I would love to see you, and I plan on recording at the show, at least after the show, maybe even before, depending on who all is there and who wants to talk to the podcast. Later this week on October 24th at the Hollywood Theater, that's in Portland proper, The Monster Squad. Now, this is not a movie from the normal era we pull from here on Monster Kid Radio, but man, The Monster Squad... We'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of the show when I tell you more about that crash. I want to get to Joe Stuber. I want to get to Abbott and Costello. I want a little bit of a laugh, and thankfully they're going to provide one. So we're going to get to that right after this. From caves and sewers come the slime people. The kill, kill, kill. There is no escape from the slime people. The slime people. For a new adventure in terror, live through the wild bloodbath of the slime people. They come with vengeance and murder. See the nightmare of the slime people. Gee whiz! Invaders from Mars. He saw them land from outer space. He saw them capture innocent people only to destroy. Father turned against son. People changed into strange, weird animals. A general of the army becomes a saboteur. Trusted police turned into arsonists. The boy's parents changed into killers. Anything, anybody, the Martians, we've got to stop the... Invaders from Mars, capturing humans at will for their own sinister purposes, turning them into diabolical instruments of destruction. from Mars, weird, fantastic beings of a superintelligence, ruling a race of synthetic humans and pitting them against mankind's dream to conquer the universe. Come on, step on it. Search every tunnel. we got to find Ronaldo and the kid. When the colonel gives a signal, get back here on the double. You know, I really, really 
really wanted to meet Joe Stuber at Cafe Claris to talk about this movie, but it didn't quite work out. So we're just going to Skype it up like we normally do and get into Abbott and Costello meet the mummy. Joe, welcome back to Mock Ticket Radio. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to hang out at Cafe Claris. That That'd seems like fun. a pretty cool place. Yeah. I would love to do that. It'd be Some awesome. Clean up afterward, though, man. <laughs> well, yeah. You have the zip up tux? <laughs> I, I want the zip up talk so bad. so bad i know that is so awesome well we've had joe on the show for a while now we keep coming back to abbott and costello movies we've been making our way through the abbott and costello meet the monster series nothing wrong with that and sadly we are now at the end oh. of the meet the monster series not at the end of the abbott and costello coverage but this is the last one in that run yeah, single tier. Ah, uh, yeah, it's, it's so bittersweet too. Um, can you think about it? They've had a good run on the monster movies. Yeah, I mean they they hit just about everything. But yeah, not only the end of the monster movies, but basically the end of their career. This is their last Universal picture. Who knew yes. at the time when they were making it? They didn't know at the time. But um, yeah, some we'll talk about that. But uh, one more film after this as a team, and that's it. Then they go their separate ways. So yeah, it just kind of I don't know. It is bittersweet. It's unfortunate. I mean, it is the last one that Universal put together uh, with them directly. I think the the other Universal film after this was a kind of a clip show, basically, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, what was it the World of Abbott and Costello? Something like that. I think it was. Yeah, and it's which is great. It's kind of like a greatest hits. So yeah, if you have a chance to see, I think it's on the box set DVDs that I have too. I think they include that on there, and also the Jerry Seinfeld special, Jerry Seinfeld meets Abbott and Costello, which is very cool. I remember um, that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a TV special like mm-hmm. back in the day, and uh, they included on the box sets uh, that I have. I have the the four volume box sets. There's also that like massive, oh, every disc in the whole giant box thing. So they've released these a couple of different ways. Oh, I know that's on my Amazon wish list. I know <laughs> <laughs> that's a that needs to go to the top of the Amazon wish list. That is an awesome, awesome set. I have the individual volumes. But that seems like it'd be very cool. So I hope you get that. I hope some, <laughs> some oh, generous benefactor were, will. Yeah. <laughs> if my wife were up and listening right now, I'd put it on a little post-it note and stick it in front of her. Well, <laughs> you know you can put those at the top of the wish list. You oh, can I adjust know. them. Is I it, uh, is how far down the wish list is it? I mean, it's I not have, like a page eight, is it? I, I will have to double check. I'll double yeah. check. Yeah. Just, we'll just add it again, stuff. and it automatically puts it to the top. So <laughs> you're good to go, man. That Hey, that's good stuff. Abacus so there will be a link stuff. to my Amazon wish list in the show notes, I guess is what we're saying here. <laughs> Um, <laughs> let's just uh, put it on uh what is it um what's the uh the thing you click on to donate or something oh or, there you go there you go the, <laughs> do you do a kickstarter for it or whatever the other one is forget. put a little uh, button on there put a little hot button on the uh there you the go Mr. kid radio website well this movie you can get not necessarily in that box that you can get it in well, you said you've got the individual volumes, and yeah. I believe it's also included in the Mummy release that, or the Mummy section of the big DVD box that the Universal just put out as well. So it's easy to get your hands on, I guess is what I'm saying here. So what is it? The Mummy, the Complete Legacy Collection, and then the Universal Classic Monsters Complete 30 Film Collection. Yeah, all that. Yeah, so. it's it's out there. You can get your hands on it. And yeah. I don't know which version I have here, but I'm glad I watched. This was a first time watch for me. Oh, okay. I'd never seen it before. A lot of these movies are first-time watches for me when we do the Abbott and Costello films. And it's been a really fun journey for me because I've become a much bigger Abbott and Costello fan because of this. Well, you know how big of a fan I am, so oh, yeah. it's always good to hear that. Um, I think with this one, the nostalgia factor takes over a little bit for me. Because as I mentioned before, I used to watch these on uh, WPGH TV 53. I used to run them Sunday mornings. And I, for some reason, I remember this one being shown a lot. Because I remember the pith helmets, I remember the snake charmer scenes, you know, and things like that. So I just remember the scenes, I remember the images coming back. And so I think this one has 
the nostalgia has overtaken me, and I'm like, oh, this is an awesome movie. You watch it again, and, it's, and we'll talk about this. I don't think it's the strongest of the monster films. Obviously, Frankenstein's the, the best. Oh, sure. It might be, for me, the weakest of the monster movies. But again, it's Evan Costello. So even like lesser Evan Costello is still more awesome than anything else that's out there. <laughs> So, <laughs> so for me, know. if I were to rank them, of course, Meet Frankenstein is great. Invisible yeah, Man yeah. is fantastic, probably my second favorite. But I'm, I'm going to shock you, maybe. This is my third favorite of the, of the set. Oh, wow. Okay, I cool. really okay. enjoyed this one a lot. Well, good. I mean, yeah. I, you know, if I'm ranking, obviously, Frankenstein, that's in a whole other world. Um, I oh, think yeah. I got to agree with you. Invisible Man uh, would go there. I kind of like Dr. Jekyll. There's just some some crazy stuff going on there. You got Karloff, uh, you know, going on, mm-hmm. and then Meet the Killer Boris Karloff. I just kind of like that whole Scooby Doo mystery kind of thing that plays out. True, but the, yeah, I'd probably put Mummy at the bottom of all this. Just because, well, we'll talk again as we go through. But I just I thought maybe Bud Ab- again later in their career. I thought Bud Abbott's timing was just a little bit off because their timing is just clockwork in every film. I thought maybe Bud's timing was just a little bit off earlier in the film. And I don't know that the the monster was as menacing as I would have wanted him to be. So, you know, not like the Wolfman or Dracula or Frank, you know, or or even Dr. Jekyll. Or, I just didn't think the mummy was as menacing. For me, I love mummy movies. So you put a mummy in something and these like <laughs> this bandaged rose colored glasses thing <laughs> happens across my face. And I just I love mummy films. So you put a mummy in a movie and I'm on board. I do agree with you. However, the mummy in this Probably the least mummy of all the Universal Mummy films. I had no idea mummies could growl and get knocked out if you hit them over the head, <laughs> which is something very important. I learned about mummies in this film. So if I'm yeah, ever getting chased hey, by always one, good right. yeah. always good to yeah. know. Mental yes. note. But well, you're kind of, you're a zombie guy too. So well, I mean, I you podcast for some years. Yeah, but but I mean, but isn't that kind of the same thing where you got like you can outrun a mummy? You know, they never really had the menace that I thought they should have because anything I can outrun, I'm like, I'm good to go on this. I just won't stay in the general area where that creature is. So now the the weird thing is, is like, I guess in the Karloff movie, like he can get you from afar. Right. You know, he can like reach out through whatever and like give you a heart attack and like, you know, (laughs) so there's that kind of, yeah. (laughs) Well, you don't (laughs) see that in this movie. This one's more just like, you know, if you can run fast, you're good to go. I don't know. Uh, the thing about the mummy films, um, you mentioned the Karloff film, and I think the Karloff mummy is, I mean, it's a hands-down classic, no doubt. Oh, the yeah. The makeup in that is amazing. Karloff is amazing. Mm-hmm. However, the other mummy films in the Universal franchise, if you want to call it that, pretty much have nothing to do with this film. They're completely a, a different beast, a different type of mummy, a different name. It's Karis in the other films, which is why Hammer tapped into when they did their mummy film with Christopher Lee. So Yeah, that's the one I've seen. I mm-hmm. think you you've got all the mummy movies in your yes. wheelhouse there. Right. I think that's the other one I've seen and it's yeah, Karis was Christopher Lee's. It was also Lon Chaney Jr.'s. Okay. And oh, the other guy whose name I'm spacing on right now, but the Karis mummy were the ones that appeared or the Karis mummy was the one that appeared in the other four Universal Mummy films. Three or four. Yeah, of them. and these are basically like, you know, old time mummy bandaged wrapped up dead to the world kind of and then all of a sudden brought back as a person right it's like that individual and it's like hey is that the mummy or is that you know you look kind of creepy but you know and but like you said in this one we don't have that sort of brought back to life kind of thing in in another person it's still just the bandaged up guy going running around well i kind of miss that i kind of like that especially the karloff thing where it's like whoa you're creepy but oh you're the mummy come to life so i kind of like that aspect of it that intrigues me 
Um, just a guy in bandages running around. Yeah, not so much. But it's cool to see Costello screaming his head off. <laughs> sure. I've heard this mentioned elsewhere as well. A lot of the Mummy movies are kind of proto-slasher films. They're the 50s equivalent of, say, like a Friday the 13th or something like that, because you've got this unstoppable killer that comes after you because he broke some sort of taboo, that sort of thing. So if you kind of look at it that way, I can see where you're coming from, where it's a lot more interesting to see the Karloff presentation, the 1932, the mummy versus just this machine that walks around and kills people. You know, I I see where you're coming from, but I still really love (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you have a guy open bandages, and I'm there. I love it. It's the, a good visual. It's a yeah, great visual. I don't know that the – like even in this one, the actual mummy, uh, Claris, in this one, uh, I thought the bandages work better. But then – so like everybody puts a mummy costume on later in the movie, and those ones look like really bad. You know, those ones like you can almost see the zippers and stuff. But like the mummy proper – I thought it looked okay in this one. Well, just don't look too close because <laughs> if yeah, you really. get real right on top of it, you'll see that he isn't just wrapped up in bandages. It is a suit with <laughs> painted yeah. lines of where the bandages are, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, uh, it's always your- crazy to me when you go back to these movies from the 30s. The makeup was incredible, and there's like, you know, all the mood lighting, everything looks like it's supposed to look. And then sometimes you get into the 50s, and it's like, man, you just see those corners being cut. And it's like, you would think that in 20 years' time that, that the technology would have advanced to, to do things better, but man, the Karloff movie just looks miles, miles, you know, advanced compared to this one, so. True. I mean, the technology advanced, but then the audience kind of changed a little bit, too. I mean, The Mummy, 1932. Who's going to see the movies versus who's seen the movies in the 50s now? You know, a bunch of kids watching these things. Not a lot of money being spent on it because they're almost kind of disposable. Whereas, you know, a Karloff mummy film, that was a prestige picture at the time. And you got Jack Pierce working on the movie and, you know, then you got a guy in his zip-up suit. So, or zip-up tux. I I love that tux, man. I still want one of those. Those I so do want a tux like that. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty cool. I have to ask you about Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. You have a much more broad or deep background or experience with Abbott and Costello movies and TV shows and Uh-oh, radio. We'll see. Well, maybe. We'll see. Well, more than me. <laughs> we'll see how much homework I did. A lot of this film felt like things they might have done on their TV show. It felt like it might have been shot on a TV set. It felt like some of the routines were very, I don't want to say boring, but like they had done them over and over and over again. You're not far off from that. I think even one of the – well, you know what's cool about this movie is we talk about the monster movies, how they were such a departure from earlier Abbott and Costello films. The the template was kind of laid early on with the Abbott and Costello films. You had a lot of their burlesque routines. You had like who's on first. You had a lot of the different routines Mm -hmm. they did. You know, all the the math, you know, and the the switching the, the money and, you know, the shell games and all those different things. And then they would always be broken up by like some random song. You know, you'd have the Andrews sisters coming in and do a musical number, you know. They'd always be in a club, and there would be the song. So whoever was the popular act at the time. And then the monster movies kind of deviated from that, where it's like, okay, now here's some serious stuff that's going down, and we've got this crazy stuff going on in the middle of it. You didn't have the songs. You didn't have all the the sort of things that were coming in the earlier films. This one almost – it's interesting because this is coming at the end of their career. It almost bookends their film career because it goes back to some of those early Abbott and Costello movies. You've got the boys doing their routines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got, you know, the, the one thing from Pardon My Sarong where they're switching the, you know, the it was the poison drink in Pardon My Sarong. Now it's the the medallion that's hidden in the cheeseburger or the hamburger, and they keep switching the plates <laughs> to, you know, yeah. And they, so there's that routine. There's a bunch of routines in this one, and I think one of them was even worked out 
on their television show like seven months earlier or something like that before they shot it. So you get those routines. You've got the musical number uh, that comes right in uh, in the middle of it, kind of random because for some reason they're at a club again uh, as we go through. So, yeah, I mean it kind of harkens back to some of those earlier Abbott and Costello movies, and I like that aspect of it because you kind of miss those. It definitely had a different vibe than, say, like Meet Frankenstein or Invisible Man. It, it felt less about the monster and more about the boys you know, going through a comedy film that happens to have a mummy in it. So much so that even though in the credits they're given different names, throughout the entire movie they're calling themselves Abbott and Costello. Yeah, yeah, we talk about that. I mean, they, there's Bud and Lou throughout different movies, but it's always like different last names. Um, and this one, uh, what is it? Freddie Franklin and Pete Patterson. So in the credits... They're listed as that, but throughout the movie, they they just I mean, even even the classic "Hey, Abbott." I mean, he says "Abbott," yeah, <laughs> you know? right, and he screams it over and over again. Mm-hmm. So they basically just went by their own names. And I thought it was interesting. I read in that book um, again, fantastic read, Evan Costello in Hollywood. They said this was the only, I think, the second movie where they used their real full names. Um, so I mean, they do Bud and Lou and some other ones, but it's usually like a different last name. So I thought they had done that a lot more, but they really didn't. But in this one, it was just so cool because it was like, who cares what we're called at this point? Right. <laughs> We've got like 30, 36 movies under our belt or something like that. So it's like, yeah, we're having Costello. Everybody but knows in the credits at the end, they, they list them as their characters' names. It's so yep. strange. Yep. The other thing that I immediately noticed the first time I watched – well, this was the first time I watched this. Costello's skinnier. And I was looking into that. He was pretty sick right before this movie was shot, wasn't he? Yeah, he always had those health problems that we've talked about on some of our last few episodes. But it mm-hmm. said uh, right after – because in between Jekyll and Hyde and this one, they made one other movie, Abbott and Costello Meet the Keystone Cops. It was right after they completed that that he had another relapse of rheumatic fever. So he actually missed a few episodes of the Colgate Comedy Hour. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was sick. I mean, again, toward the end of the career here – he made a solo film after this. He was having issues all through his career. He, he had that. Um, so, yeah, I noticed that, too. His timing, I thought, was great in this one. I don't, I don't think he lost a beat. No. I thought Abbott's was a little bit off early. That was one of the other thing I noticed in some of the routines. Abbott was just – and, again, when, with that rat-a-tat dialogue, even just a little bit off can be noticeable. And so I kind of caught that with Fuds. But Lou seemed fine as far as the performance. Yeah, even though it looked like he'd been recovering some, from some health issues, he was spot on. I yeah. mean, he was great. But I think you're right when it comes to Abbott. There was a pacing issue. He seemed a little slower, and I don't know if he was just getting older, he was getting tired. Also, the physicalness between the two of them, he was getting, he felt a little bit more rough to me on Costello. The slapping and the pushing around, it just felt a little bit more. It seemed to be that way. Yeah, because there was even you know? that one scene where Costello says, Oh, I thought you were going to slap me. And then he slaps him right in the face, which. We know from Evan Costello it's funny, but yeah, that one seemed a little a little bit of extra weight behind it. It really did. I don't know. Maybe yeah. it was just, you know, going back through time and knowing that the, you know, they were gonna break up not long after this. And I think I think that probably bothered Costello a little bit, some of their relationship. Again, it wasn't long after this that they split up. There was a famous story where well, even in this one, this was their last Universal picture. I think they were they wanted some more money, the contract was up, and then Universal didn't renew their contract, so it turned out to be the last one. There's this famous story about the show in Vegas where Bud apparently had spent too much time at the tables with the free drinks and was not ready for the show that night. And I think that was, you know, Lou had had it at that point. It just wasn't working out. And they kind of split up. So it's uh, so, so frustrating because they were such an unbelievable comedy team. 
Uh, and so you can in this one you can definitely see some of the cracks. Not to say I didn't enjoy the movie. I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed this. Like I said, I'd put it like it's the third favorite of the whole run of the monster movies. And part of it was because it starred my favorite Klingon. Yeah. I am a that? huge fan of Kang from the original Star Trek. Well, I guess he did some of the newer Star Trek too, but I love Kang. So Michael Ansara is yep. in the film and I, I love that guy. He's like I said, he's my favorite Klingon. I love Kang. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of neat to see. Yeah, the, and well, we're t- we talking about the the cast now. Sure, let's talk about the cast. Yeah, that, yeah, you recognized my segue. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah, and now this is one of the earlier roles uh, for Richard Deacon, and who mm-hmm. played Mel Cooley in the Dick Van Dyke show. So it's really it, this is years before that show, but it's so tough for me to watch this movie now and not see and hear Mel Cooley uh, in this, that role, just he embodied that role. And I just almost want Costello to kind of like pull a Maury Amsterdam and <laughs> call him cue ball or Baldy or something. <laughs> he's so serious in his movie. I mean, he's serious on the Dick Van Dyke show too, but it's played for laughs, but I just keep seeing Mel Cooley in this movie. Well, and he's deadly serious in this too. I mean, he's yeah. not breaking at all. He is, well, he's a villain in the film, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I know him from that. And then I started looking at his filmography and he'd done some you know, other monster movies and such in the fifties. And so, you know, he mostly uncredited small bits like invaders from Mars with them or this Island earth. But yeah, he's, he's a TV guy. He's a Dick Van Dyke guy. I mean, I can't watch this and not think of Dick Van Dyke. So that's yeah. pretty cool. But um, yeah, it's neat to see him. And one other person who's in this, we want, we want to mention uh, is Lou Costello's daughter, Carol. Uh, she's no longer with us now, unfortunately, but she plays the flower girl uh, in this movie. It's kind of because Costello, we, we talk about the, there's, we'll talk about when we get to the plot. There's a, it's sort of the MacGuffin in this is the medallion and everybody's mm-hmm. after the medallion. And so there's that whole switching scene where it's in the hamburger. It's not in the ham, in the, it's cursed. So Lou's trying to get rid of this and a flower girl walks by and he like tries to throw it in these flowers. And she's like, Oh, these are wilted here. You can, have, it comes right back to him. Yep. So the more he tries to get rid of the medallion, but that's his daughter, um, who was also in, uh, Meet the Keystone Cops, and also in the Navy, one of their earlier films, she was a baby in a stroller. Oh, really? At that point, yeah. So she appeared in a couple of her, or three of her father's films. So kind of need to see her in that as well. She does a great job. Very cool. So yes, yeah, so we got Carol Costello. We talked about you know about Lou, of course. We talked about Michael and Sarah, my favorite Klingon. Uh, <laughs> was that a show? That should be a show. My favorite be, Klingon. My yeah. favorite Klingon. There you go. There you go. I like it. <laughs> the wacky adventures of the next door neighbor, the Klingon next door neighbor. <laughs> That sounds good. I like it. Can I borrow a cup of gach? <laughs> I'm only on board if they cast Richard Deacon in a role somewhere. <laughs> He's got to be in it. He's got to be in it. Marie Windsor is our femme fatale-ish type character in this, yeah. who was at one point kind of sort of Miss Utah. Okay. <laughs> that, I, that I didn't know, but uh, I can see it. And she trained under Mariah Aspenskaya, who was the old gypsy woman in The Wolfman, and Frankenstein meets The Wolfman. Nice job on the name. Hey, I've been practicing. <laughs> and it's a good-looking cast. It really it, is. It really is. And I, I liked her in this a lot. Yeah. A lot. And, of course, it wouldn't be an Abbott and Costello movie if she doesn't start putting the moves on Costello. <laughs> yeah, I love when that happens. Oh, yeah. Cause it, and, again, you get that dynamic, too, where uh, the woman's always hitting on Costello to get him to bend him to her will and do, you know. But then, but there's, there's scenes in here where he's definitely the con man. I love because she's... Oh, I'll buy the medallion from you. Ah, I'll give you a hundred bucks, you know. And then immediately, Bud like goes right in. No, that I there's you want this for some reason. 
It's zero to 50, like both. I love that yeah. scene. I love yeah. that's the butt out that I love because he just gets it. Mm-hmm. And he knows. So, yeah, it's kind of cool to watch her, her scenes with the boys. Very yep. cool. Well, there's another woman earlier in the film, and I don't know if she's in it very long, but Costello does approach her in the bar or the cafe, and she's like, why do you approach me? I'm an artist. Why would I tell you my name is blah, blah, blah? And he, why would I tell you my phone number is this and my address is that and I'm free? Blah, 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 blah. And she writes down her information, gives him a card. And again, it's that con man kind of smooth, I'm going to take advantage of the situation, but you don't need this card. Let me get rid of that for you. And takes the card from Casella and puts it in his pocket. And it's just smooth. Yeah, it's and that was definitely a routine that they have done oh, yeah. before. You've seen that on their television show, and it just—it's so funny to watch Bud's reaction in the background while the scene's playing out in the foreground. It's mm-hmm. so cool. It just—it's just funny to watch him, and that—the timing of that scene is really good. That one's on the uh, spot on. I thought that one was spot on, and while it might have felt a little rusty, I still liked the "Who's on first stand-in" routine. It wasn't "Who's on first, but it was about a shovel and a pick. And yeah. I had that same kind of wordplay back and forth, back and forth. It felt a little clunky in spots, but I still liked it. It was still a nice kind of like, oh, yeah, this is what we love about him. Yeah, it's another one of those classic Evan Costello routines, too. And, you, of course, you get the Costello line you know, where he said, now you got it. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. Just, it's, it's brilliant. The shovel the, the shovel is my pick. I can pick for your shovel. Yeah, it's, just, it's great stuff. But, again, that kind of goes back to those early Evan Costello films. I missed that a little bit in the monster movies. I love me my Evan Costello monster movies, but I do love those old burlesque routines coming back. So it's nice to see that. And it's also nice to see Costello once again breaking the fourth wall. I know you don't like that. Come on. I didn't mind he, he that does some much. great takes in this one. I didn't mind it at all in this movie. There's a lot yeah. of him looking at the camera or whatever. I had no problem with it at all. Well, especially when you're doing the switcheroo thing with the hamburger. That, yep. and, and you'll see that in part of my sarong. He'll look right at the camera. That I'm a bad boy kind of look. You know, it's, just, yep. it's so amazing. Yep. I love it. The other person of the cast that I want to mention uh, is Eddie Parker who played the mummy. He's normally a stuntman. He played Claris. And if I'm looking at the Internet Movie Database correctly, this was the last time he was actually credited for his film work. And he did a lot of TV as well, but this is the last time his name actually appeared on film in the cast credits. He also doubled in Jekyll and Hyde too, right? Yes, he did. He also doubled Lon Chaney in a bunch of stuff. I mean, he'd been working for the Universal Monster machine for a while. So it was good to see his name actually get on screen and give him some props for doing the mummy. Exactly. I appreciate that, so... No, great cast. Great cast in this one. I think so. Really enjoyed their interactions and the way they kind of work together. And there's some double crossing and people pretending to be a mummy that they're not. I mean, that's I really love the film. I yeah. really oh, enjoyed this movie. And real they, quick, too. We, I mean, I kind of referenced the, the random song, the random you know musical number yeah. that comes into. But Peggy King sings, uh, what is it? You Came a Long Way from St. Louis. Yeah. Which I love that song. She had one of her songs cut uh, from the final film, Sing You Sinners. Uh, that was cut out of it. It's short runtime, so I don't know why they couldn't have put that in there. Uh, but it's cool. And I, if I'm looking at correctly, I think, didn't she just make an appearance at a convention somewhere? I thought I saw that somewhere. I could be wrong on that um, because I remember somebody, it might have been on uh, Chris Costello's Facebook page. Or I think she had posted that, that Peggy King was uh, going to be somewhere. But I thought that would be kind of cool, too. But, yeah, I love her voice in this. Again, we're throwing back to the, you know, the musical numbers right in the middle of something, that sort of thing. And I felt like it fit. I didn't have a problem with it. You know, it did. It, I always like I always like the musical numbers. Yeah, I mean so, it's a nice yeah. little aside. It's kind of a throwback to the radio show. It's kind of a throwback to the TV stuff. Yeah, it's it's comfortable. And my wife said she kind of looks and sounds a little bit like Judy Garland too. I, I yeah, I, I could too, see yeah. that in this. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. I could definitely see that in this. And you know, her appearance, the musical number, is foreshadowed. I suppose you could say it's not out of the blue because the whole movie opens with that weird circus routine at the cafe. 
Oh, yeah, I mean, the whole weirdest. movie opens with that after the narration about how you know man's best friend and his mummy. We go immediately wah, to wah, this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that, okay, that joke I didn't. Yeah, that no. kind of fell flat. I know, but I guess you got to <laughs> kind of do that one. So all right. Sure. But then you go to this routine with these three women and this guy, and somebody's getting shot, and there's all these pratfalls. And wow, I, no, wow, not only pratfalls, but like violent. Like at one point, yeah. it's a circus acrobatic act and things that are going on in this cafe. That's unbelievable they're like grabbing the women like whipping them around and at one point like grabs her hair and drags her around and yeah and she's smacking him and hitting him you know it was very strange to see all that in an abbott costello movie i didn't know what to make of that but it's certainly unique well it's what passes for entertainment in egypt i don't know (laughs) (laughs) egypt that's what they do i guess i didn't see any of that at cafe claris later on though maybe they were booked for later in the month who knows Find the mummy. Don't worry, the mummy will find you. You'll howl as you follow Bud and Lou in a strange land where exotic dancers perform ancient rituals. You'll scream at this mystic world of mad magic and uproarious adventure. Does this mean anything to you? It means death to whoever holds it. Starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, with sultry Marie Windsor giving you your first look inside Costello. Turn off the lights. Let's stop fooling and cut them open. And Peggy King, George Goebel's TV girlfriend. You blew in from the Middle West and certainly impressed the population hereabouts. Imagine Lou trying to be charming to a snake. And Bud at the end of his rope. Stop blowing! Your nerves will jangle as they tangle with terror, meddle with murder, and try to elude a curse 4,000 years old. Gosi was in a zombie movie. Actually, he was in more than one. But the one big one, the most important one, the very first one, 1932's White Zombie. I used to produce a zombie movie podcast, and while I was, and still am, a George A. Romero fan to the core, I always had a strong appreciation for the zombie movies that came before Night of the Living Dead. The black and whiter, the better. Um, Yes, I realize Night of the Living Dead was in black and white, but I hope you get my point. The Romero zombie was an undead creature, but zombies pre-1968? Well, as far as the movies go, they started out as something a little different. Voodoo, drugs, radiation, x-rays, hypnosis. It really could have been anything. And actually, sometimes beings from other worlds could be called zombies just because. 
White Zombie, though, it took things pretty seriously. It's a stark movie, stark in its lighting and mood, stark in its pacing, and stark in its differences from Lugosi's Dracula from just a year earlier. I love Dracula. It's an important, stunning film, and it has a lot to offer us monster kids, but it wasn't the first vampire movie. White Zombie was the first zombie movie. And I've gone on record before and will happily do so again in saying that without White Zombie, we just wouldn't have the zombie subgenre we have today. The zombies people see on TV every week are a far cry from those poor, unfortunate souls the ghost's character commands in White Zombie. But without that movie, I strongly believe that we would not have zombies as a searchable keyword over at Netflix. White Zombie was a lower-budget affair, but it has a big-budget and familiar look. Lots and sets from previous Universal films were used by the production, which means Lugosi must have felt right at home, since some of the great halls from Dracula served as a location for this film. Even Jack Pierce was used in White Zombie, so there was a familiar face on set, although Lugosi didn't really use Pierce's makeup services too much on Dracula. However, an element that sets White Zombie apart from Dracula is the music. There's a soundtrack to this movie that runs through almost the entire picture. It's gorgeous music, and I wish there was a CD or digital release of this movie's soundtrack. Most, if not all, of it is classical music, so that shouldn't be too hard. Anyway, Bela Lugosi plays Murder Legendre, and again, he's in the villain role. The movie was released about six months after Murders in the Rue Morgue, and watching these two movies back-to-back, like I recently did, show Morgue as something different than what his character is or does in White Zombie. Now, there's his accent, which links the characters probably more than it should have, for better or worse, but if you pay attention to the acting, you'll see Lugosi playing different strengths in these movies. I'd even go as far as saying that his role in White Zombie has some elements of the mad scientist that Lugosi would end up playing quite a few times throughout his career. Now, in White Zombie, he's more voodoo master and master of mysticism, but there's still a touch of that control over the elements and his instruments, like the pinprick of potion that he can use to bring somebody under his spell. Well, the film overall is a good one. Lugosi stands out as most of the film is populated by actors and actresses whose heyday was back in the days of the silent films. But this just brings an element of melodrama that is very at home in White Zombie. As an aside, I was honored when Stephen D. Sullivan asked me to write the introduction to his novelization of this classic film last year. While I read the book, I could hear Lugosi's voice delivering the lines of dialogue. Sullivan's character had the timing, the pacing, and the accent just came through. It's a masterful piece of work that stands on its own next to the film. White Zombie was the first zombie movie, and a number of classic zombie films were released soon afterwards. Soon afterward, I Walked with a Zombie is another important zombie movie, and while Lugosi didn't have anything to do with that one, he was in its kind of sort of follow-up, Zombies on Broadway in 1945. Now, the bulk of that movie takes place on the island of San Sebastian, which is also where I Walked with a Zombie took place, and there are some actors that appeared in Walked that turned up in Broadway, specifically Darby Jones as the featured zombie and Sir Lancelot, who, in an uncredited role, performs the same task he performed in I Walked with a Zombie. He sings a Calypso song when our heroes get to the island. The heroes in question... Jerry and Mike, played by Wally Brown and Alan Carney, respectively. They're PR men, press agents for a nightclub back in the States, and it happens to be owned by a former gangster who's threatened to make Jerry and Mike disappear if they don't deliver on a PR promise that they've made to the local media. You see, they announced that they'll have a um, real-life zombie at the nightclub's opening, so the gangster-turned-nightclub owner sends Jerry and Mike to the Caribbean to get one. Well, you know what Lugosi is going to play in this, right? 
He's the mad scientist, making zombies of his own, this time through science, as opposed to mysticism. This isn't a very serious movie. It's mostly a comedy that spends the bulk of its time on the misadventures of Jerry and Mike. And while some of the humor didn't age too well, that's okay. What I really like about this movie, and would point to whenever someone claims that a particular actor had a hard time with comedy is that Lugosi is able to deliver a few laughs, and he does it well. There's a particular joke that ends with a punchline referring to someone being colorblind, and it makes me laugh out loud every time I see the scene. As a zombie movie, no, it doesn't compare to White Zombie, and Lugosi's presence isn't as strongly felt throughout the entire film, but it's still a fun watch, and a movie that I appreciate for both the laughs and the mad scientist-ness Lugosi puts on screen. Now, RKO thought Zombies on Broadway was successful enough to keep the team together, and in 1946, they released Genius at Work, which featured Lugosi, the Wally Brown, Alan Carney comedy team, and for some reason or other, Lionel Atwell was thrown into the mix. Lugosi doesn't play the same character he played in Zombies on Broadway. This time, he plays a character named Stone, another villain. But for big chunks of the movie, he plays second fiddle to the movie's real baddie. Again, and I cannot stress this enough, I really do think Bella could pull off comedy when he needed to. In Genius at Work, he gets a chance to do this, but not with as much seeming aplomb as he did in Zombies on Broadway. That said, Lugosi does get to do a little bit of physical comedy, and even manages to give a nice, sarcastic, sneering smile to the comic team in the movie. However, his character is a servant to Atwills. Maybe it's Lugosi's strong presence and charisma playing against him a little bit, because I had a hard time seeing... Anybody played by Lugosi being subservient to Lionel Atwill or really anybody else. Now, this was Lionel Atwill's final film, but you wouldn't or couldn't tell that would be the case when watching Genius at Work. He seems like he's having a great deal of fun funning around with Carney and Brown. But he and Lugosi are such strong personalities. They do seem to jockey for attention or focus a bit when they're on screen together. And almost every time, Lugosi loses because his character works for Atwill's. But Bela, he's still enjoyable in this film. There's still a vibrancy to what he's doing on screen. He still feels full of life to me. Now, this movie was released just 10 years before his death in 1956, but you wouldn't know it from watching it. I mean, he's still Bela Lugosi. You heard in Legosi Ween Part 5 is Dance Macabre's Sad Part No Violin. It's by Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com. It's licensed under a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This information is also available over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. when you have ghosts but who do you call when you have monsters 
We're the monster squad. Monster squad. It's like Miami Vice, I think. They're young and inexperienced. Naughty virgins. They're a bit disorganized. Monsters are not real. We don't know that, sir. Two thousand year old dead guys do not get up and walk away by themselves. But when strange things start happening in town. There's a monster in my closet. Ooh, look at that big scary monster. What's happening? Do I kill a werewolf? Silver bullet? They're the only ones ready to do battle. He's of the show friday october 24th the hollywood theater we are crashing the monster squad from 1987 from director fred decker i mentioned the director because he's going to be there as well i don't know if there's going to be a q a or just an opportunity to take some pictures either way i'm excited i have never seen the monster squad on the big screen of course i've seen the movie on video on vhs on dvd and on blu-ray but to see it as a 35 millimeter print on the big screen at the hollywood this is going to be a treat so that's an upcoming crash i also have another crash coming next week a week from today in fact it's a hammer films double feature also at the hollywood for twins of evil and frankenstein must be destroyed now if you are a user of facebook i typically announce these crashes there first and create event pages so remember like monster kid radio or join the monster kid radio group and you get this information before i even announce it on the show That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Big thanks to Joe Stuber for making that happen. If you want to hear more Joe, you got to check out Comic Book Central over at comicbookcentral.net or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. We're going to be back here in a couple of days with part two of our conversation about the movie. We're going to get into the plot, talk a little bit about the story, what really hit for us, what some of the misses were, that sort of thing. And then we're also going to announce what the next movie Joe and I are going to cover down the line. It's been a real fun trip for me to kind of skip through these Abbott and Costello monster movies. There is another movie out there with Abbott and Costello that has some supernatural elements that we are going to talk about here on the show in the future as soon as Joe and I can make our schedules work. Speaking of schedules, we've got a lot of things coming up here. Fast and Furious at the end of the year. We've got a Christmas episode coming up, but I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because, I mean, it's not even Halloween yet. We've got Halloween stuff coming up. I'm hoping to hit at least one haunt here in Portland, and as I did last year, I'll bring the recorder along for that as well. 
We also have the next installment of Legosi Ween, the countdown to Halloween, coming up in the meantime. Remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Invisible Dracula Goes to Town. That's by Invisible Dracula. You can find it on their EP, Invisible EP over at invisibledracula.bandcamp.com. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody here in a couple of days. (laughs) 